Well, Tom, I think it was a, a little bit over a year ago that we did this the last time and we talked about your uh, your latest book at that time, Getting to 18. Uh, it was, it's been a, a, a long uh, 15 months or so. Uh, I think at that time you talked about uh, being locked down and, and having to figure out new ways to execute projects in Ireland and other spots. Uh, if you would just give us a little background on uh, how the last uh, year has gone, and, and then we can dive into the new book, uh, The Making of Pacific Tunes. Okay. Um, well, the last year has gone pretty slow for me, like it has for a lot of people. Um, you know, I combined most of my consulting work and the couple of new things we had in planning in the States into two really long road trips last summer and fall. So I was in my car for like a month at a time getting to Oklahoma where we're right now working on a restoration of Dorna Kills, Perry Maxwell's first course, um, doing a routing for something out in Colorado that may or may not ever happen. Um, you know, getting starting to discuss the Lido project in Wisconsin, which is now underway. Um, and and checking on a couple of things in California as well. So, so I was coast to coast. Actually, I flew from Denver to California. That was the only plane I was in between March of last year and the spring. Um, and um, oh, and also uh, doing a routing for Zach Blair for his project down in South Carolina, which is I may be interested to see how that turns out. It's kind of a experiment for me of doing a routing and then letting go of it and really letting him build it. He wants me to be involved a little bit, but it was, it was kind of good for, it was, it was a good situation for me because I, I said, you know, I'm not sure how much time I have to be involved with it. It depends on how things go. I think I'm going to be in New Zealand for two or three months, right in the middle of your project. If they, if the timing for both of them works out well. So I, you know, I really can't commit to much of that now. I'd like to be involved if I got time but I know that he really wants to design his, most of his golf holes. He just wants another person as a sounding board. So if I've got time to do that, I'm happy to. Um, so, you know, staying half productive, you know, keeping a couple, you know, we, we had a bunch of things delayed. Most of them have still kind of come through just later than planned. So we're, you know, we're building two things right now. And we've got a couple of things on deck that we hope are going to happen. Um, you know, the main problem is just trying to keep up with, I've had calls about things all over the planet and I can't go see any of them. Um, I really haven't gone and seen a new project outside the States. You know, I can't even go to Canada, something that's not that far away. You just can't go in there right now. So, uh, so that's been complicated, but you know, and it's also kind of a, some kind of warning sign flashing to me, like, you know, the more of these overseas projects you do, the harder they're going to be. I mean, there's, you know, like if I commit to a big international project now, I have no idea how, what the quarantine rules might be and how much longer it would take to spend time on the ground there than it, than it used to. Um, so I'm a little more wary of doing that in general, I think. Um, you know, I'm getting to be that age too. 
we're talking here the morning of uh, July 3rd. We're, uh, we're about 20 years removed from the opening of Pacific Dunes. And uh, the reason that we wanted to talk today was about your, your latest book, The Making of Pacific Dunes. Uh, walk us through, if you can quickly, just kind of describe the book. What was, what was the goal of the book and, and what was the process of putting it together? Well, I actually wrote most of it 20 years ago. Um, when Pacific Dunes was getting ready to open, my dad was in the hospital dealing with cancer. So I would go out there for like, I was out there for a press day and got a call from Connecticut. You need to fly back here. He's in the hospital. He's not doing good. So, you know, so for all that spring and early summer, um, leading up to the opening and then just after the opening, um, you know, trying to help him out, but you know, he was clearly declining and, uh, you know, dearly wanted him to see the golf course, but he wasn't up to it physically. And he passed away in August of 2001. So he never got to see the golf course. He got to see pictures of it. You know, I took my son out there for the grand opening and my son like filmed a bunch of stuff. He was nine at the time and brought it back. So my dad got to see that. Um, but you know, while I was dealing with all that emotionally and we weren't busy, uh, we were just, we were doing the planning work for, uh, the Rawls course in at Texas tech, but we hadn't got started on the construction yet. So I really had a lot of time and, um, you know, and trying to burn off the extra energy of dealing with all the emotional stuff. Um, I started just writing down as many of the details as, of building Pacific dunes as I could. Not just like, you know, what we changed and what we didn't. I mean, I could still tell you that without any notes 20 years later. But even like where, you know, like where the idea came from for the sixth green or the fourth fairway or, or any of, you know, you know, people ask me all the time now, did, did that, was that fourth hole based on the ninth hole at Pebble Beach? Yeah, or, you know, or different things that just, you know, they see something that reminds them of something else and they think, you know, and we as architects do that too, but you tend to forget over time, like what really was it that reminded you of that? You know, you can see the similarities when other people bring it up, but that's not necessarily what you were thinking about when you did it. And so I wanted to write all that down because I, you know, I thought that one of the big gaps in the literature of golf course architecture was, you know, an architect really talking through a great course and how it came to be and, you know, what decisions he made and why he made them. And, you know, and all of the other people that are contributing things into it at some point and, you know, how they're involved. Um, and, you know, and I realized that Pacific Dunes would be a great subject for that you know, that, that it probably would wind up being one of my best courses that I ever did. You know, it's a resort, so tons of people get to see it. They've played 30 or 40,000 rounds of golf there for 20 years straight. Um, so so it's a really good example of, of um, you know, for people to study and try to understand what we did. You, t you talked about how much of the book uh, you, you drafted in some way, shape, or form 20 years ago. Uh, walk us through a little bit how you go from that point, and here we are 20 years later when it's actually being published. Um, 
did you have other periods of time over the last 20 years where maybe things were slower or something where you you wanted to put it out there uh and and how do you go from the notes and the ideas uh to turning it into an actual book uh starting a book is easy and finishing it is hard <laughs> uh, you know and having done several like they, a, they just keep sounds like a golf course hard. yeah building a bridge, a lot of things. Um, you know, and it seems like they just keep getting harder every time. Uh, so so it's a good thing I had a really big head start. But the person who helped me on this was Sarah Mast, who used to, who was an intern for me back in like 2004 or 2005, you know, worked on a couple of construction projects for us, then, then ran my office for like four years. And then she went back to school for landscape architecture and then the economy crashed right after that. So she is teaching now, but you know, she's still a good friend and she comes up through here every once in a while. So she saw the manuscript, she saw the manuscript in a bunch of like stacks of photos and stuff that I tried to save for the book. Like when she was working in the office every time back in 2005, 2006, and she wanted to help. And at the time, it was like I was so busy with new stuff, I didn't have any time to think about it at all. But she'd started thinking about it. And and so the last two or three years, kind of concurrent with working on the Getting to 18 book, uh, she's had all the notes and pictures and started to, like, you know, put the puzzle together of, you know, this photo really deserves a place. And here's some, here's some that are, like, here's some before pictures that are close enough to the same angle of a picture we have now that it really shows the progression of how that whole came to be. Um, you know, that's a painstaking job. And, you know, and honestly, most like most publishers would really struggle with that because they wouldn't know the material well enough. They, they wouldn't, they'd look at a picture and not know what hole it was, much less trying to figure out how that fit together with some of the newer pictures that you've got. So I really took someone like Sarah who had a love for the subject and, spare time to work on it to start putting all that together and then you know that took quite a while and then you know from you know once she gets it roughly laid out then I can come back in and start editing and you know trying to make the text fit the box and and uh and you know work on you know try to figure out where the captions are just duplicating the text and one or the other of them needs to go out and all that good stuff that's the last part of making a book that takes a lot of time. You, you know, you've got the manuscript written and you think you're done and you're about a thousand hours of somebody's work for me and done. Sarah has uh, joined our team at Golf Week on our uh, advisory panel and she's uh, been a, a great addition over the, the last few months. And so uh, we're eager to talk to her a little bit about uh, this process as well. And so, yeah. um, Let's dive in a little bit to Pacific Dunes itself um, and just, you know, can you give us a quick overview of how you got the job? Uh, obviously, uh, those who have read Getting to 18 will have a little bit of background on this, but uh, just yeah, walk us through. Many people. Um, yeah, so <laughs> Pacific Dunes is it's really only the it's about the only job that I've ever like chased and tried to get. I knew a couple of people from Chicago pretty well who knew Mike Kaiser. And when he bought the land in Oregon, they said, you should really talk to him about that. And I said, yeah, I should introduce me. <laughs> um, so, 
uh, you know, I'd seen Mike had done the Dunes Club in down in the southwest corner of Michigan, the Nine Hole Golf Course, and I, you know, I saw that and thought, well, there's some really cool things here, and I don't think they're Dick Nugent's ideas. I mean, they're just he's never done tees that look like that, and he's never built island fairways that look like Pine Valley. So, I think that's some of that's client input, and you know, this probably would be an interesting client to work for if that's his idea of what he wants to do. Um, so, uh, so I called Mike through an intermediary and said, you know, I'm going to be out on the West coast. Could I go look at the property? And he said, sure, there's a caretaker and, you know, we'll set up for you to go look at it for a couple of days. But that was in 1995, like five years before the four or five years before Banded Dunes opened, which is kind of critical that I, you know, just because I knew some people that knew Mike, I got my foot in the door before he was a famous golf developer and every architect in the business was calling him about looking at his project. So obviously uh, David gets the first course. Was there... Um, Even so Bruce and I went out to see the site and... David had already done a routing at that point. You know, we were six or eight months late from that standpoint. But that was fine. I mean, Mike, you know, if you've read Dream Golf, Mike says, you know, I had such a controversial reputation, mostly from the con- confidential guide, that Mike didn't think, you know, Mike thought golf writers would not be, you know, eager to promote the new golf course if I did the first golf course. But he knew a lot about my work. He'd read all my stuff. And, you know, he liked the confidential guide. Um, he just thought it was controversial. Um, you know, and he'd read all the stuff that I'd written in Golf Magazine over the years. He'll tell you that, that's one of his, that that was one of his big early influences that, you know, it was important to go find a really good piece of land if you wanted to build a great golf course. So, um, so I was kind of like, slotted in to be second in line if the first golf course was successful to build another golf course, you know, years before it happened. And as it turned out, uh, years before he owned the ground for Pacific Dunes, you know, he had bought, I think, 1,500 acres or close to something like that with his original purchase, but it did not include the land for Pacific Dunes or Old McDonald or the Sheep Ranch. You know, it was from the third fairway abandoned dunes south and it included some land kind of down below the preserve along the beach that he thought would be great lynx land but it's got all kinds of like wetlands and little ponded areas in the dunes so they, the environmental people wouldn't let him touch that with a hundred foot pole and um you know and for a while he thought well you know it might just be abandoned dunes and then the land for abandoned trails and then this, the land for Pacific Dunes, the, the next door neighbor went bankrupt and needed to sell it. <laughs> and that was the biggest break of my career. So you, you go out there in 95. Obviously, I, I assume you fall in love with the property the moment you get on it. Uh, uh, but well, A little later than that. I mean, the, the property was covered with gorse like 10 feet tall. I mean, you were just you were just like on a little trail going through the gorse like you were in a maze that you couldn't see out of until you got within 50 yards of the coastline and everything opened up. And I was like, wow, that's spectacular. 
uh, but no, you couldn't tell what was going on underneath. And, you know, Band and Dunes doesn't really have the, you know, the 20, 25 foot internal sand dunes that Pacific Dunes does. So it, it just felt pretty flat, except for once you got really close to the cliff. And it was really hard to tell what there was to work with. I'm amazed David was able to do the routing that he did because he really couldn't see some of it until they cleared it. So you go out there well before you get the opportunity to yeah. work on Pacific Dunes. I'm assuming that, you know, you're excited about the opportunity. You're, you're chomping at the bit. How hard was that four or five year stretch between a, a first look at a property knowing that, hey, you know, this is the opportunity I really want. This is the client yeah. I want to work for, work with. This is the site I want to work on. And and there's years in between going out there the first time, Bandon Dunes comes along. Uh, and to your point, now probably every other architect under the sun wants their chance. How, how tough was that stretch of time? Um, well, the first three or four years, honestly, wasn't that tough. You know, he was waiting on environmental permits and, you know, that's pretty standard in the business, but you know, as well as I do, you know, sometimes these things just don't happen, period, for whatever <laughs> reason, money, environmental concerns, you know, the economy just takes a dip. Uh, there's a fire, you know, who knows? Uh, so, you know, so I try not to think about it too much because it was still, you know, it was almost a fantasy that I was going to get to do the golf course. Um, you know, it, it was definitely years down the road, and I couldn't really be thinking about that too much. And I, we, we had some other things to think about at the time. You know, in between, I was in Scotland uh, looking at a project for John Ashworth, part of which became the Renaissance Club, but years later with a different guy. So, so we did, you know, we had other things kind of keeping us busy, and you know, and building what I thought were some pretty good projects, but yeah, they were light years behind Pacific Dunes as far as pieces of ground went or, or things that were going to really capture people's imagination. Um, you know, I, I mean, like just before Pacific Dunes, we built uh, Lost Dunes, an Apache Stronghold, and of course in Virginia called Riverfront that had been stuck in planning for years. We kind of pretty, we built them all at the same time and my guys were pretty spread out. And I thought we really did a good job on all three and none of them really got a high level of recognition. And that was really frustrating. And then, you know, the day I went back out to Bandon and started taking the map of Pacific Dunes seriously, now that Mike owned that ground, um, you know, you, you knew that was a chance to do something great and something that nobody could ignore. And the fact that David's course was so successful just made it that much easier for me, honestly. You know, everybody was going there and everybody had already put that way high on a pedestal. So, and and frankly, David wasn't Jack Nicholas or Pete Dye. Um, you know, if, if, if Jack Nicholas had built the first course at Bandon Dunes, even if he built exactly the same course that David Kidd built, which probably wouldn't have, but even if he had, you know, it would be hard for somebody, anybody, any of us to come in behind him and do something that was ranked higher, you know, but, you know, David's course captured the imagination and got ranked really high. 
but still David didn't have that cachet. So I, I kind of knew if I could build something just that good or something that people think is better than that, they're not going to really have any choice but to rank it really highly. When, when you read Getting to 18, you start to understand uh, a little bit about where Pacific Dunes fell uh, in, in your own personal timeline. And mm -hmm. that, uh, well, the golf world, uh, rightly or wrongly, may have considered Pacific Dunes kind of your coming out party or your first big success. It wasn't your first golf course. You, you, I believe no, you said you'd been in the business. Thirteenth golf course, and <laughs> you know, and you know, I had a bunch of architects out there for like a pre-opening thing for it. And Bill Cor said, "Congratulations, you're an overnight success after 20 years of trying," because <laughs> I'd known Bill all that time. And yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you know, it took a long time for me to stumble into that project, and and really knowing a lot of people. You know, although it's funny, I mean, the the two my two biggest advocates to Mike Kaiser for that job were uh, uh, an amateur golfer from Chicago named Bill Sheehan, who I'd met when I was in college. He hosted me at Butler National and who, you know, who then went on to win the U.S. Senior Amateur and the British Senior Amateur. And Mike, you know, Mike Kaiser really looked up to Bill as a great golfer you know, but, you know, somebody who just played for the love of the game and, you know, wasn't in it for financial reasons at all. So Bill was going to give him his best, honest advice. And Bill was, you know, my, one of my biggest supporters. And then the other one was Dick Young's cap. You know, not many people know that Mike Kaiser was one of the very few investors in Sandhills when Dick did that. And I'd gotten to know Dick when I worked for the Dyes they did a course for Dick in Lincoln before, prior to Sandhills called Firethorn that was a pretty successful development course and convinced Dick that he could, he could actually develop a course in the Sandhills. So I'd known him going way back and, you know, and Mike, you know, Mike looked up to Dick like nobody else as a developer. He was actually able to build Sandhills, you know, keep it on a tight budget and make the numbers work even out there in the middle of nowhere. That's one of the main things that convinced Mike that he could do banded dunes and have it be successful. So with the two of them in my corner, it was like, you know, whatever Mike's concerns about me were otherwise, he thought, okay, you know, I believe those guys. Knowing that it came uh, you know, at the time in your career that it did. I'm sure long before you got the opportunity to do Pacific Dunes, you felt you were ready, you wanted that chance, you were you were looking for the perfect site. Uh, now, hindsight being 2020, uh, and you look back on it, um, do you feel that it came at the right time? And were there things that you learned on those other 13 projects or the other 12 projects that uh, you were able to apply and and make it make it better because it came when it did yeah absolutely it was better that it came at the, I, you know i think it came at the perfect time in my life for a bunch of reasons you know some of those were just personal you know i you know first i struggled to establish myself and then i went through a divorce and then you know pacific dunes just happened to happen at the same time i met my current wife and fell in love and you know so i was in a very good place emotionally, personally, all that stuff. 
Um, but it also, you know, I mean, I think I might have been able to design Pacific Dunes when I was 25 or 30, when I was starting in the business. Because my ideas on design haven't changed very much. And because I've got, because I can read, I've always been able to read a topo map pretty well and work on routings. And, you know, as I explain in the book, the routing for Pacific Dunes is, you know, quite a bit based on Mike Kaiser's feedback to me from my first couple of routings you know, to come up with the final one, you know, it's way better. And it's better because of trying to correct some of the things that Mike didn't like about the previous routing. Um, so that part, I don't know if I could have done when I was 25 or 30 to take a client's feedback, not overreact to it, just listen and internalize and then go back to the drawing. board. And then certainly, you know, it helped a ton that I, over 10 or 15 years of in the, being in the business, you know, I built a team behind me. It wasn't just me trying to get Pacific Dunes built. It was me and three other associates and, you know, a great superintendent and, you know, finding all the right pieces of the puzzle to make it work. Because that was, you know, that was the frustrating part of a lot of jobs. You come in with pretty good intentions and pretty good ideas but just not have the support from a client or not have enough help to get everything to come together the way it did for Pacific. When you, when you go through a, a golf project, uh, it's been my experience that there are many things that uh, kind of fall into place, whether it's during the routing or actually in construction, there's lots of them that maybe your initial instinct is right on and it just, it just works. And then there are other, other, uh, elements that uh, uh, you just kind of keep banging your head against the wall or they're a struggle, they're a struggle, they're a struggle until all of a sudden maybe a, a light bulb or something changes uh, in construction that opens things up and unlocks the puzzle, so to speak. Can you walk us through maybe what uh, a couple of those might have been at Pacific Dunes? Well, for me, the biggest one was just getting the routing sorted out right. So so I did three versions of the routing. The first one was before I before I'd seen the property, just to get you know give myself a bunch of holes on paper to to walk through. And and so I so I had a routing and I got out there and you know Mike had told me you know so I had a routing for I think the site for Pacific that he bought from the neighbor was 400 acres, a lot of it inland that you never think of as being part of the golf land. Um, and, you know, so it went from the fence line of number three abandoned dunes to a fence line that's actually, it was actually right by the 13th tee of Pacific Dunes today. He didn't, the land for 13 of Pacific Dunes was a separate piece of ground that it turned out he also had bought, but it wasn't on my map to start with. So, but he had told me that he, he'd let David reroute his front nine and come into that bit of land from the South for a couple of holes. And I didn't realize how much that was. It was like the last hundred yards of David's fifth hole, all of the par three sixth, and then the seventh and eighth that play East and back to the West were all, in, you know, that took up like 50 acres of the ground for Pacific, that I thought I had for Pacific dunes. So my, my initial attempt at a routing just tripped right over that. 
and you know i was i was playing kind of two loops out and back and you know it was going right through the middle of david's seventh and eighth hole so he couldn't possibly do that and the and the one kind of you know i i i had found on the map where the 17 where today's 11th hole is that was going to be the 17th hole in my original routing and where the 10th green was that was going to be the 16th hole uh but you know i'd routed uh today's 10th hole at pacific as a short par four and then a par three after that and from the first day i stepped on the ground you know i saw we couldn't do that because you know, the T for the short par four was back in one of David's fairways. So, so the only way those two holes were going to fit in the routing was if they were back-to-back par threes, which, you know, all golf course architects try to avoid except in the most perfect situation or the most dire situation. You know, it's just something you're always told, don't do that unless you absolutely don't have any other choice. Um, So that was one bit that, you know, I kind of know it's got to work out that way, but I know the client's going to think that's not a great idea. I know everybody else is going to think, oh, do you really have to do that? So that took a long time to solve. And then the other one was, you know, my original, even my second routing, the holes along the coast all played north with the water on the left. And that wasn't me trying to you know, favor the slicer over the guy that hooks it. That was just, you know, I got in there where 10 and 11 were. And then, and then when I found the land for the 13th hole, I mean, that was, that was a perfect hole ready to, you know, sand cap and grass. And that played North too. And it was clearly better going that way than the other way. So, you know, it was just easier to keep, going along the coast, even if the holes weren't all consecutive, it was just easier to keep having the water on the left than try to figure out how to get a hole playing south in between those holes playing north. And, you know, and that was the thing that Mike didn't like about the routing, that all of the, all of the oceanfront holes played north and played into the prevailing wind in the summer, which, you know, I hadn't been there that much in the summer yet. It is a huge deal. I mean, the wind abandoned in the summer blows hard from the north every afternoon. And you don't want all the best holes just with the wind hammering in your face. It's hard to enjoy. So trying to sort out that, how to get in and out and have what's now the fourth hole play south uh, in the in between 11 and 13, two holes that were just handed to me, uh, was really complicated and it took a long time. And... And then, you know, like a day and a half before I had to leave on one of the trips, I had the idea of how to fix it. And and we walked it the next morning and it turned out to work pretty well. The um, One of the things that, uh, you know, whenever you're presented with the opportunity to work along a coastline, obviously that's your major asset. You want to take full advantage of it. You want to try to... Um, utilize it in as many different ways as you can, whether it's, you know, cliff on the left, cliff on the right, or playing at the water uh, or away from the water. Um, The spot between 11 green and four green, 
you know, there's, I think, uh, roughly 80 yards there. I looked it up on Google Earth. You know, that's a decent chunk of, of land uh, right on the coast that um, isn't uh, necessarily in play for golf. Right. How hard was it? How hard was it to have a little bit of land along the coastline and and not utilize every inch of it uh, for uh, tees or greens or, or golf holes? Uh, you know, I think one of the things that that makes Pacific Dunes great and and just to your point, kind of unlock the puzzle is the way that the transition from three to four works and from four to five and 11 to 12 and 12 to 13, it works beautifully. And, and that's what makes the course as good as it is. But there is, there is a little bit of land that's not used. How tough was it not to try to use every inch of that coastline? Um, not, not as tough as you're making it out to be. I mean, the hard part about that, that piece of land was that there was a dune, right? You know, not a really big dune, but it was a dune right there on the edge of the cliff. And, you know, we actually had to like carve the 11th green down into that dune face to some degree. And we had to carve the fourth green site out of the dune. You know, at, at first I didn't think we would do that. I thought there was just a little narrow slot where kind of the front of the green is. And I thought we'd just sneak the back in there. But, but by the time we got to building it, we were pretty comfortable with what we were doing. And Jim Rabina just said, no, I can just like make more room and essentially shift the dune over some and get the whole green sitting in there and feel like it's natural. And I said, go ahead. Um, but so that space in between, you know, when, when Mike wasn't comfortable with the back-to-back -back par threes, you know, 10 was just stuck being a par three if you were going to use that green site because any T for it that was, you know, that was longer than a par three went back into David's course. So you couldn't do that. So Mike spent quite a while being uncomfortable with the 11th hole, even though it was a beautiful setting for a golf hole, because you don't want to do back-to-back -back par threes. And, you know, the, the, the only way, well, the only way I really convinced him about it in the end was to show him a routing that really worked well, that well enough that that being a piece of it didn't bother him. But, you know, I kind of, you know, going through the alternatives with him, it was like, well, what else are we going to do? If we don't make it a par three, then it's going to be a par four where you're kind of hitting blind over that dune down the coastline that you can't see all the way past it. Uh, that's not going to be a very good hole. And, you know, you can't just leave it out. You know, we're not going to walk from 10 green to the top of that dune by 11 green and not use that bit of coastline. Um, so, but honestly, I never really thought about the little piece that we were leaving off in between. You know, I thought a ton about those connections that you mentioned from three to four and from four to five and 11 to 12, which 11 to 12, is, it's okay. It's not, <laughs> that's not the star of the show by any means, but the one from three to four really is. I mean, you know, the, so the missing piece in the routing was I had what's now the third hole playing toward the 12th green for a while. And that didn't leave room for another hole to fit in there. And so finally, you know, I thought, you know, maybe I can put a little green site up in the dunes 
to the right and then have a separate hole running from, you know, running from 11 to the base of the hill where 13T would be. And, you know, we didn't, we really didn't know how the third, what the third green site looked like until the next morning when we had a whole group of us go out and walk this potential routing. And, you know, the, the gorse was still burned down and still smoldering in places. And, you know, there was, it was just all a tangle, you know, on the approach to that green. So we'd never walked up on there before. We kind of had to walk around it a little bit. And we walked up on the green site sitting up and you, you know, you forget after you've been on the tee and you're walking down through all this burnt stuff of where you're going to wind up there. But we walked up onto that green site and saw the ocean and saw the rocks off five mile point and saw the, where the 13th fairway would be going, you know, from the green site and everybody went, Whoa, that's amazing. <laughs> and, and then from there you, instead of just going to the 13th hole that you can see, you turn away from that and you walk around the corner of where the halfway house is and you just see that whole stretch of coastline in front of you all the way down to the town. And that is a spectacular view. That's probably as good a view as anything on any of my courses and I've been really spoiled. Um, it's just a spectacular way to see the ocean for the first time is to you know see it walking up on three and you think you're seeing a lot of it and then walk around the corner and you see that much more. In my opinion, that's one of the underrated aspects of routing is not only the holes themselves, the tee to green, but the, then the green to tee transitions. Um, what are some of the uh, debates uh, that that took place during construction? Were there, were there spots, whether it was, um, you know, particular green complexes or uh, details of any one hole were there were there certain spots that you, you as a team uh, whether it was between you and and uh, mr. Kaiser or you and and the the rest of your team uh, that you maybe debated or played around with different ideas and and what were some of those uh, spots throughout the golf course that maybe you had more debate than others as to what you wanted to do um there weren't that many, honestly. And, and and one reason was that we were pretty, we went into it pretty cautious about that. You know, we'd heard, we'd heard some stories when they were building Bandon Dunes that David and Mike had gone back and forth over the contouring of a couple of the greens. And, you know, so, so the, you know, what you're playing on now is like the third version of that green. And it's hard to do the third version and still, be in a good frame of mind and have it turn out really well and have it be something you like. So, so, and I knew that, you know, Mike's biggest concern about my work and he'd said it from the very beginning was, you know, I like to build greens with contour in him and he likes pretty flat greens. And um, so, you know, which was odd to me because he likes a lot of famous courses that don't have flat greens. So at the beginning of the job, I said to Jim Urbina, you know, let's start, slow and gentle and the first three or four greens we build which were the 10th and the 11th and the fifth um and then the ninth are pretty gentle and you know we're not doing anything that's going to raise his hackles at all until we 
you know, get into this a little bit until maybe I understand better what it is that he doesn't like. And so those first three or four holes, they went really fast and everybody was enthused and everybody was like, yeah, let's keep going. And then when we built the, the upper green on the ninth, it's a huge green. It's, it's, I think it's the biggest green there. And it kind of, you know, there's a little bit of it. It's, it's in a bowl and a little bit of it drains out the front. And then a lot of it drains kind of really long and gentle out the back. And where the transition was, there was kind of a, this little humpy thing that we formalized into a, into a pretty round humpy contour that, you know, sometimes you'd have to putt over. Uh, you could put the pin pretty close to it, just to the right of it down in the bottom of the trough. And that would be a hard hole location. Um, but just, you know, it was the only feature on the green that you really have to think about and react to, you know, like don't leave your approach in the wrong place with that thing. There. And Mike hated that contour, you know, from day one. He was like, no, no, just soften that, you know, get rid of that. And so that, you know, so it was that. It wasn't like having fall from back to front. It wasn't like having little terraces in the greens. It was having like a convex contour inside the green that really exaggerated a long, you know, if you're trying to putt over it and you pulled it a little bit, you know, suddenly you were six or eight feet away from the hole and you were embarrassed. And that's what Mike didn't like. And what he thought his customers would not like was looking dumb over a contour like that. So once I understood that, you know, it was easier to start putting more contour in the greens without worrying about doing something that Mike didn't want. And, and we really never had any other uh, back and forth about any of the greens after that, um, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, the goal of any golf course, well, I shouldn't say any golf course, but uh, the goal of a golf course on a great piece of land is to have it look and feel natural and, and be, uh, you know, I think Mackenzie referenced, you, you know, you shouldn't know where nature started and the architect uh, or where nature finished and the architect started, something like that. Um, what are some of the spots? Obviously, Pacific Dunes is a great example of a golf course that fits seamlessly with its its natural setting. But uh, in any golf construction, there are spots where you have to create things and you have to do bigger, bigger work, whether those are cuts and fills or, you know, if it's screening off, a, you know, an outbuilding or something like that. Where are some of the spots that you had to do more intense work uh, than others on the golf course? Well, I'll start with a couple of things that are completely natural. The, uh, the 16th fairway with all those little bumpy contours in it, that's pretty much completely natural. I mean, we, you know, we were honestly worried that it had so many steep little contours in it that uh, they wouldn't be able to run a fairway mower on it. And we kept asking Ken Nice. It was the, Ken was the assistant superintendent in charge of Pacific Dunes. You know, Troy Russell, the head superintendent, was going to, like, be head over the whole place. And Ken would run Pacific Dunes. And so, you know, we kept... We kept asking Ken, are you sure you can mow this? You know, we could soften that if you need us to. And he'd just keep looking at it and be like, no, I can handle that. Um, it was it was so different than, you know, mm -hmm. I've had a few superintendents in the past who just, you know, 
you know, we're, we're terribly afraid of something not nearly as severe as what I'm talking about. So it, it was just a great thing to see Ken's attitude. And, you know, he's still there 20 years later, he runs the whole place. Um, so, you know, when we started that, Tony Russell, who had worked just a little bit on Danden Dunes, um, you know, Jim and I told Tony, don't, don't run any equipment anywhere near that. Just rope it off and don't go, don't touch it until we get to like finish work and irrigation. And, and it wasn't there, but somewhere else, Tony, like the first week took the dozer through someplace he wasn't supposed to go and Jim chewed him out for it. And Tony was like, Oh, you guys were serious about that? You know, the other guys said that that's what they wanted to do, but that's not what they were doing. <laughs> um, and it couldn't have been at, at Band of Dunes. I mean, the, you know, they, they were clearing gorse 10 feet high. So they, they had to tear up pretty much everything to start. And that was the huge advantage of Pacific Dunes because the gorse had burned down to the nubs in a fire before we finished doing the routing. Um, we could clear exactly, you know, we could work to the edges that we wanted to and clear exactly what we wanted to and leave exactly what we wanted to. And that would have been really hard if the gorse was still head high or higher than that. Um, so the biggest plate, the biggest earth moving things, um, there's three or four halls along the coast. Well, more than three or four. So the, so the, the 10th and the 11th, the, fourth and the 12th and the 13th holes are all sand capped three feet deep. Uh, you know, it was almost just sandstone right, right at grade on those holes. So we had, it. we didn't have to shape them very much at all. The contours were beautiful. We just had to like cap it with enough sand that, you know, even in, even in a rainy winter, the, the sand still, drain through um, and the moisture released through the profile. So, you know, really deep sand cap compared to what most people use, but it was really easy. You know, we just, we just basically took out this little small dune ridge that was between the sixth hole and the 12th and used that for the sand cap material for all those holes. Um, actually changing contours, uh, the biggest changes were The biggest one, I think, was the 18th. Um, you know, when when Mike saw that the first. Well, originally I'd had two holes where the 18th is now. Might have gone back a little farther than that. Um, but when I did that last version of the routing, uh, it changed. So 17, 17 and 18 became new holes. And the 18th, the second shot for the 18th, where you hit kind of over the corner of that big blowout on the left. There was just a, a, a big dune ridge in the way. You couldn't see over, you couldn't, you know, it would have been very forbidding to, for 99% of golfers to try to hit over with at any point in the hole. Uh, it was a good 20 feet high. And, you know, we just had to tear that right out of there. You know, it kind of continues, you know, the left side of the hole as you go further up toward the green is the continuation of that ridge. But we had to tear out like, 80 or hundred yards long by 20 feet high and, and throw it all in the little valley to the right to make a fairway to get through there. And then the other biggest change was the 14th hole. Um, 
you know, I mentioned before that the 13th was not on the map for the golf course originally. Um, it was on a separate piece of property that Mr. Kaiser owned, but um, I, I didn't even know that he owned it at the time. And, and you know, after, after my first pass and finding out that David had several holes up in the ground that I thought I was going to use, you know, I told Mike, well, you know, I got to go back to the drawing board because of that. But, you know, I feel like there's, we're going to wind up with, with three holes just in this, just in this open flat area up here that, um, that aren't going to be nearly as exciting as the rest of the golf course. Uh, it's actually, that was actually the land that, uh, like the sixth and 10th holes at Old McDonald are on now. Um, and and Mike said, well, you know, I let David borrow a little bit of that property. So, so you know, why don't you go look at just over the fence because I own that too. And, you know, this was back in March of 99 and we couldn't, um, you couldn't get across from where the uh, 12th and 4th holes are now on foot because it was just solid gorse except for one little trail and the trail was flooded in a couple places. So Jim and I went, drove around and down to the beach where you go down to the beach in between the sheep ranch and, and old McDonald. And we walked back up from the beach up this trail up onto the dunes, which took us kind of to where 14 T is today. And we turned that corner and looked down into where 13 is and went, God, that looks like a golf hole is already there. And so Jim, you know, we both went down in the landing area and, and I said to Jim, you stay here. I'm going to walk all the way back to the where I think I can get a tee and try to pace it and see how far it was because we didn't have range finders or anything with us. And so I walked back to the tee for what's today, 13. And I took a picture of Jim standing in the fairway. That's the picture on the cover of the book. It's just, <laughs> just gorse and that big sand dune with a bunch of open sand on it and Jim and his red jacket standing out there in the landing area. But that's what we had to work with for that hole, like a golf hole pretty much done except for clearing gorse and and making it ready for grass to grow. The, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a hard to ask designers favorite holes. Uh, usually you come to uh, like them all maybe differently, but you more often than not, yeah. you maybe don't pick favorites. Uh, you know, not necessarily favorites, but what holes are you proud of? Uh, and maybe why are you proud of them? Uh, sometimes it's because they were a struggle that you had to overcome yeah. or get creative. So some spots that you're really proud of out there. Well, you know, I've dealt with that same question you have for years, and I always say I have two kinds of favorite holes. You know, like the 13th hole, from the moment I went back to the tee and looked at it, it's like, well, this is going to be like the most photographed hole on the golf course. Everybody's going to think this is the best hole on the golf course. And, you know, there's not, you know, I'm certainly happy that I found it in that state, but I don't really take a lot of pride in having designed that because it was mostly there. And so, so that's one. And 11 took, actually took more work. Jim did some great work to get that green shaped in there. Cause it was, you know, on a, not on a steep slope, but a, a pretty good slope. 
Uh, so all the contouring at the back of the green is artificial. Um, the the sixteenth hole is another that you know I I had that drawn on the map from my first routing, and just thought it was the perfect place for a little difficult par four. Like you know, it reminded me a little of Tenor Riviera, reminded me a little bit of Nine at Cypress Point because it sat because the way it sat in the dunes, and um, so I thought having holes like that was going to be really important to the golf course. But again, you know, other than shaping a green, it's a natural golf hole. So a little harder to find than, you know, this 400 yards of coastline is going to be pretty good, but still not. So, so the one hole that I would say I had the least idea of what we were going to do when we started was the eighth. Uh, you know, I've, we found this green site for the seventh walking around out there and thought, well, that's going to be a beautiful green site for a long par four. And then the eighth just kind of played back parallel to it into the wind and was really just, it was in the routing to get us to the ninth tee because the ninth tee had to be in a certain spot to play diagonally up onto that fairway and not feel like a forbidding hole. So, so we just, you know, the eighth connected the dots and we had to do it that way. And the, and the eighth green site was in this thicket of trees. I mean, it was just, I couldn't even walk in there. It was so thick, you know, just a bunch of little cedars and pines grown together and you couldn't see anything. Um, on the topo map, there was, it looked like there was some interesting contour, but I couldn't really tell what. So we got it all cleared out and, you know, there was kind of a, a dune behind it on the right. And I was trying to figure out what to do with that. And, uh, so we, by then we'd had maybe six or seven holes, maybe, I guess six, we'd had all the par threes near the water. We got the ninth hole kind of shaped and we started work on six. And then we'd also jumped over to uh, 16 and two, which were more open areas while we were, you know, cause the gorse burned there, but the pine trees hadn't burned on seven and eight. So we had to clear them. So, you know, we got a bunch of holes done around them while we were doing the clear. And, and by then I'm starting to think, oh, we have a lot of holes that are left to right, you know. And, you know, I kind of hit the ball that way. And Jim Urbina really hit the ball that way. So we both kind of, that's what we want to see first. And I know enough to try to fight that if I feel like we're doing, leaning too much that way. So the eighth hole is kind of a, is a, it's a left to right dog leg. But I went into it thinking, how can I make this not like two left to right shots? How can I make it where you actually want to stay on the outside of the dog leg or you want to hit a right to left shot into the green? And I was thinking about that on the flight home from being there for four or five days. And this hole popped into my head that I'd seen in the UK when I lived over there, the third at Woking. It's not a Lynx course. It's, you know, it's a Heathland course. It, it doesn't have, you know, there's nothing about, I, I, you wouldn't have thought of it by looking at the landscape of Pacific Dunes at all. It all came about because I was trying to think of a dogleg hole that you wanted to play the outside of the dogleg and hit a certain kind of shot into the green. And that was clearly the best hole that I could think of that I'd ever seen. So, you know, so we reshaped that whole green complex to try to get it to, Except, you know, there's a, there's the greens angle left to right, 
but there's a bunker in front and there's a way to play around the bunker to the right that the ball feeds onto the green pretty nicely if the pin's in the back half of the green. I think it's it's a really neat green. You've got that part of it, and then you've got the, the front that sticks out. It's, it's almost like hitting the approach to the road hole at St. Andrews because it just sits up about two or three feet high. And, you know, if you go over it, it's really hard up and down from a bunker. So, you know, you're, you're just trying to play just to the front of it and maybe – get the ball to sneak up on the front of the green. And that was, you know, that was, there was nothing special about the site for that hole at all. And I think it turned into a really good hole, you know. My favorite My hole favorite on the property, the entire, the entire main of golf resort property is the sixth. Yeah, which uh, might not, you know, uh, you'd be shocked when you think about, okay, of all of Bandon Dunes Golf Resort, you got all this coastline and stuff like that. Uh, much of that hole is is pretty open, flat land. Uh, there is some interest. Walk us through the sixth a little bit and how that came to be and, and your, your ideas behind that hole. Well, funny enough, that hole, the – there were so that first routing I did that tripped over David Kidd's routing. There were four holes or pieces of holes in that routing that that made it through to the end: sixteen, ten, and eleven, and six. And six. The th the thing that caught my eye on the map was it's a little hard to think of it when you're on the tee, but there's. So to the right of the tee, you've got that big bank of the ninth, you know, the ninth fairway is kind of up above you there. And so you've got a ridge, and then that ridge just drops down to nothing really sharply. There's a little gap, 40 yards or so, and then it starts back up into another ridge where the sixth green is and then onto where the third tee is. And I thought, boy, if you could get a hole that kind of used that gap, and you kind of like you're trying to play through the gap, and then the green sits up, that would be a really cool hole. So, so I had some version of that on the original plan, and it was really short. It was like less than 300 yards. Um, and my Kaiser, you know, heard less than 300 yards. He was like, no, no, I mean, do we really want to do that? So, so I kind of went away from that for a while. The second version of the routing, I'm trying to think. I guess the second version of the routing still had a hole like that. But then the you know, Mike still didn't like it. So the so the third version, I was trying to go away from that, and it's in the book. Not many people know the story, but the you know the, the routing that we all walked and approved. There was one big difference between what we walked and what we built, and that was the fourth hole was two holes. It was going to be a short par three over the first bit of the that's in front of the tee now and then a short par four into that green side and then no fifth hole. And then the sixth hole would have started from like five T and gone toward that green, but it would have been a very different hole. And, you know, as soon as I, you know, as soon as I went back and tried to put that on paper in the office, it's like this fourth and fifth hole, aren't, they're not fitting very well. You know, five is too short and it's downwind and, you know, to get it long enough, I'm back in the tee up where it's going to be in the way on 12. And it just, it doesn't work very well. And so I told Mike, you know, I don't think we could do that. I think we've got to just combine that into one long hole. And then I've still got, I've still got the space where the fifth hole was, was 
not used in that plant. We can build a PAR-3 in there, which he was nervous about because he hadn't seen it. Then we can move the 6T kind of back around to where I had it before. And so so we wound up being forced back into using that hole. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole, even from the beginning, like the best players that I know, people like Bill Sheehan, are like, that's a scary hole, you know. I think you're going to drive try to drive it up close to the green, but you just pull it left in that bunker and you can make anything. And, you know, Mike was scared of it when in construction, you know, we're building the green and it was like, I don't know how deep that bunker is, 15 or 20 feet deep, short and left of it. You know, Mike was just shaking his head like that's too deep. People aren't going to be able to do that. So, in, so one day in construction, I had my clubs in the Jeep. And when Mike came for the walk around, I said, I'll go hit the shot. And I, you know, I took a wedge out and I dropped a couple balls in the bunker and I first try, I hit a ball up onto the green site out of that bunker when it was half dug and Mike just went, Oh, well, I guess. And that, that whole conversation went away. I, you know, it's a lot easier to hold it up on that green when it's all dirt than it is now with turf on it and not a very, not, not a very wide green and then off the bank on the other side. So it's a good thing I tried it then. Uh, I don't think I've ever hit it on the green out of the bunker since the course opened, but I know better than to go in that bunker. I don't go in it very often. Be curious to see how that, go ahead. Sorry. Another funny thing about that hole is, so they had the Curtis cup there like five years after the golf course opened. And all of those players thought it was the easiest hole on the golf course. You know, they were not tempted to try to drive the green. So they're just, it's for them, it's just driver, nine iron, driver, wedge. You know, it wasn't very windy. So they, you know, it wasn't like blowing their approach shots all offline. And they, they had no problem hitting, hitting a fairly narrow target with a wedge from a 90 or 100 yards. And then, you know, the hole is somebody made three on like every group. It was unbelievable. And I'm like, that is how much. That's how that's how much expectations affect you as a golfer. You know, it's only it's it's only a hard hole for the guys because they think it's short. I could drive the green, and that's what messes you up. If you just could completely take that out of play and just think of it as a driver wedge hole, like like the women did, it really wasn't that hard of a hole unless the wind's howling. Well, one of the things I love about that hole is just how when the wind shifts, you know, if you play it in the summer versus playing it in the winter, you've got that uh, kind of carry bunker on the right-hand side that can come into play uh, much more so uh, when you're into the wind. Uh, uh, and so it's a hole that, – that's a hole that plays well in different in different winds, which I think is really hard to execute. You probably had the benefit of width out there. Uh, that, that, that helps uh, – but uh, the golf course now is 20 years old. You just just celebrated the 20th anniversary of the golf course. Um, are there? Well, first of all, what, with any golf course, there's little little tweaks that happen over time or a little evolution. We know the wind plays uh, impacts the bunkers out there. Walk us through any little refinements or tweaks that have been made over the 20 years. And are there are there any things? Uh, is there anything that when you go out there and you play? that you, you have in your mind that say, boy, I'd love to, I'd, I'd love to tweak this or that. There's really not. I mean, most of my other courses there, there will be something or other that, you know, after maybe right after we build it, maybe not for a few years after I think, yeah, we could have done that differently. It would have been better if we 
move that green back or just not taking that bunker out or whatever. Uh, Pacific Dunes, no, they're really, you know, we did, we did move a couple of greens, you know, from the plan through construction, you know, bring in the second green, you know, second hole originally was planned longer. And we brought that back partly because Mike said, boy, that's going to be a tough hole into the wind. And, and it is, I mean, it's, you know, you, you look at that hole on paper and you think, well, everybody will drive it to the plateau part of the fairway, but into the wind, no, most people aren't. And I'm actually trying to play like toward the left fairway bunker and short of it to give myself an angle for the second shot. Cause otherwise you just hit it in the face of the hill and you have a really blind second shot. Um, so, so we did, you know, we, I guess we had the benefit of time when we were planning and building the course to figure most of that stuff out. So we really didn't have too much, too much of anything that, that I thought of years later, because I thought of it while we were building the golf course, I was there so much and so many guys on site that were really sharp that, you know, I think we ran through pretty much all of the possibilities. Um, the one thing that, you know, we knew was going to change, but we didn't know that it would be as big a headache as it was, was the sand blowing out of the bunkers. I mean, you know, David had deliberately built small bunkers down in the ground to try to minimize sand erosion. And, you know, my routing, you know, right away we're looking at the big blowouts behind number one and in front of the tee on number two and the big blowout all along the side of number 13. And we're like, well, if we're going to have some features like that, how can we just have little bunkers for the rest of it? You know, I think we, I think we ought to make the features look like that and look like the ones at Sandhills, which was an easy sell to Mike because he loves Sandhills and he was part of it from the beginning. Um, but, you know, so we talked a lot with Dick Young's cap about what they do to keep the sand in the bunkers at Sandhills. Uh, but Sandhills has the advantage of being closed for six months of the year or more. <laughs> and, you know, and, they, they, and they've done everything from like put tires in the bunkers at first to now they use a soil cement. You know, so they go in in the fall, right, when people are playing and just, you know, basically glue all of it down and then come back in May and break it up again and, and turn it in. And you can't do that at Pacific Dunes. It's open 12 months of the year and the wind's blowing 12 months of the year. Uh, we put irrigation around the bunkers to try to water it hard to, you know, keep it wet and keep the sand in place. That helps a little, but not enough. I mean, it still blows like crazy. Um, so... You know, I just was at Pacific Dunes uh, six weeks ago with Mr. Kaiser, uh, you know, looking at, is there anything we want to do? Actually looking at Old McDonald, and there are a couple of things we've got to do there. But, you know, Pacific, like pretty much, I would say 75% of the bunkers are three feet deeper than when we built them. And that's after they've put a bunch of sand back in them over time. You know, so now they're starting to like, some of them they're they're filling back up to more of the original grade and then putting a layer of sod in so it won't go past that and then just putting bunker sand on top of that. So they'll just keep filling it six inches at a time instead of instead of three feet at a time. Um, you know, we have done we have broken up some of the big bunkers into smaller ones so it blows less and it does blow less. Um, you know, so like a the, in front of the green on the right of three used to be one big bunker and that, you know, that would get terribly deep and like there'd be a little 
there was like a miniature dune forming between the bunker and the green from all the sand that was just getting blown out of the right side of the bunker. So we went back in and broke that up into three bunkers a few years ago to try to minimize that. And there's a few places we've done it. And there's other places that were just like, no, that's just part of maintenance for the golf course. We'll keep dealing with that. And it's a, it's a big part of maintenance for the golf course. It helps a lot that, you know, it's a cost that you don't expect, but then like having the fescue fairways and some of the other decisions that we made out there, keep the budget down so that it's just, it's just a different thing in the budget instead of an added thing to the budget, thankfully. And the place is doing pretty well. So that, you know, even if this, I, I would get, you know, nobody's put a number on it, but I'm guessing they're spending 50 or a hundred thousand dollars in labor every year to put sand back in bunkers. They have the sand it's right there. You know, they just have to dig it and truck it from one piece of ground to another, but they spend a lot of money moving sand around every year to keep that natural look like it's all been there all along. It's uh, you know, we often talk about golf courses are living, breathing things that evolve over time. Uh, there you can almost see it in real time. Uh, if you catch the right day, you can see the evolution. So, uh, well, Tom, thank you so much for taking some time out and sharing some of the backstories to uh, uh, the making of Pacific Dunes. Uh, walk our uh, listeners through how they can how they can buy the book. Oh, well, like buying any of my books now is pretty simple. You go online to dopegolf.com, click the read tab, and I've got six or seven books for sale. Uh, but I have a lot more copies of this one in my office right now. So this is the one we're trying to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> well, ho hopefully, uh, hopefully your, your hand doesn't get uh, uh, too worn out from signing them. So uh, again, thank you so much for taking time out. We appreciate it. And uh, congratulations on the book and congratulations on 20 years at Pacific Dunes. Thanks, Jay. Nice to talk to you. Appreciate it.